Hello, this is Black Men Speak, and I'm your host, Keith Dent, a podcast that highlights ordinary black men doing extraordinary things. On today's show, we're going to talk Andre Norman. Andre is the reason to believe in second chances. His tenacity and passion for people led him to start his transformational program, The Academy of Hope, a program designed to reduce institutional violence in prisons by providing an intense level of intervention while also creating a positive environment for the inmate population and staff. But this wasn't always his calling. Nearly two decades ago, Norman was serving a 100-year sentence in prison, but he was no regular prisoner. A natural-born leader, he rose to be the top gang leader within the facility, running all the daily gang activity. After an epiphany in solitary confinement, Norman made the decision to turn his life around. He had a simple dream to attend Harvard University and become successful. Over the next eight years, Andre worked 20-hour days to make his dream a reality. He taught himself how to read, then to study and understand the law, and then volunteered to participate in anger management groups. After winning his appeal and being armed with a GED and a dream, Andre walked out of prison in 1999 after serving 14 years. Having survived rock bottom, Norman knew he could help others do the same. He pulled from his life experiences and created the Academy of Hope and set out on his mission to teach both individuals and corporations how to turn any situation around. So we'll discuss the journey that has opened so many doors for Andre and in 2020, helped him pen his first book, Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty and Prison into a Purpose-Driven Life. So the next voice you'll hear will be of me and Andre's conversation. So, Andre, uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful, brother. I appreciate you having me on. Great. Um, so, yeah, so let's get started. So, for our listeners, who is Andre Norman? Andre Norman, born in Boston, grew up in inner city, dealt with the same struggles as a lot of people, domestic violence in the house, um, poverty in the house, um, dad leaving the house, and just struggles. I'm a public school kid who didn't fit in. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't big. I wasn't that smart. And I was kind of overlooked and neglected. Um, I'm the kid who was ashamed of being poor because kids made fun of me. I'm a free lunch kid. Um, I was an avid trumpet player through middle school. Until my friends convinced me in high school that playing trumpet was stupid and I should get rid of it. And I got rid of it. And I always tell people, the reason I went to jail is I gave up my trumpet. Not because I was poor. Not because I didn't have a dad. I didn't have a dream anymore. And I went through high school just wasting my time until I finally wound up in court. I started reading off sentences, 7 to 10, 9 to 10, 9 to 10, 2 10s, 2 15 and 20s, and a 5. They sent me to prison. When I got to the maximum security prison, it was a reunion of all my friends from special needs, all my friends from the principal's office, all my friends who quit football, quit basketball, quit band. We were all there. It was just like a big reunion of everybody I know that quit at something. And the culture of prison is what it is. It's violent. It's unforgiving. It's unrelenting. It's unmerciful. And you get in and the strongest survive. And over the first six years of my sentence, I participated as a gang member, became a gang leader. Um, I hurt people. I fought people. Um, and that's what I did every single day for six years until I finally woke up 
and realize that I was a king of nowhere, that I have achieved this mythical dream and status for nothing. I had no control of my own life. I had no control of impacting my family, but I had this mythical title of being the king of the prison. And that's why God came up with the goal of wanting to go home and be successful because most people want to just get free. I tell them, freeze the parking lot. I don't want to get in the parking lot. I want to go beyond the parking lot. So I came out myself. I told the homies, I figured it out. I'm going home, going to Harvard, going to be successful. And they all told me I couldn't go. It wouldn't work. Black folks can't go to Harvard. Criminals can't go to Harvard. Gang members can't go to Harvard. I, all I heard was my friends from the ninth grade stealing my trumpet again. And I refused to let that happen to me twice because I know how I got to jail because I gave up my dream once. So the crazy part was I could go to those same guys and say, hey, let's go attack the other prisoners because, and they'd suit up, get their knives and run across the hallway with me. Let's go attack the guards. They would suit up, get their knives and run up on the guards with me. All, both of those things would ensue in more time being spent in prison. I said, let's go home. Let's go home and be successful. And nobody wanted to go. The conditioning of people is real. When you've been conditioned to a certain extent, live a certain way, it's 1,000% real. So I had to do it by myself, and I did. I did. I have a question about your trumpet before that, but you talked about conditioning. Uh, so the, the conditioning was to be prisoner, or was it more that they couldn't succeed? The conditioning of the average American prisoner is they're not worth it. They have no value. This is where you're supposed to be. This is all you deserve. You should never want to grow or be more. And it's okay here. You can make up your own fantasy or dreams about what this really is. And you can stay here. And people have just bought into the, this is my lot in life. And this is what I'm supposed to be. I bought into it. And I made the best of the prison experience until I realized it was a game and a joke. And when I, since I've been home, I've had the ability to work in 24 countries, multiple presidents and prime ministers around the world. And I've come across so many entrepreneurs, so many successful people who have the same conditioning. They are locked into a bad relationship. They're locked into a dead end job. They're locked into a scenario of life that doesn't work for them. But the conditioning says you got to keep smiling. You got to keep doing that thing. You got to keep being the boss. And you can't just say, I'm done. So it extends beyond prison. And I was a trumpet player, by the way. So we went back in high school. So who was your favorite artist? That was a problem. I didn't know him. That's when my friends came to me with the BS about trumpets off for Black people. I had never been taught about Dizzy Gillespie, about Miles Davis, about Matt Rossellis or Coltrane. Never heard of any of them. I was just given a trumpet in the sixth grade because that's what you give kids in the band. Here's something. And nobody gave me the history of music. I didn't know about jazz or the Renaissance. I didn't know about the blues. Or I didn't know about any of that. I was just giving the trumpet and said, go play it. And I didn't understand the history or the power or the legacy of music. And that's why when my friends came to me, I could be deceived because I wasn't informed. I see. I see. And so when and how did you know that you... Andre Noon was destined to be a leader and to lead, I'm sure not just men, but just humans. I realized I became a leader, wasn't 
I led people in the wrong way. I don't call that being a leader. All the time I was a gang leader and I had a mob of guys that would run behind me, that was trauma leading trauma. Misery loves company. We were all miserable. I was just a guy up front. And they were looking for a space and a place to enact their trauma on somebody else, like I was. So it wasn't like I wouldn't call myself a leader in that space because it was all negative. There was no upside. When I turned my 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 goals to being something successful, I believe a leader makes people better. I believe a leader takes people out of despair and puts them in a better place. When I was a gang leader, I was putting people in worse spaces. I was getting them more time, getting them to solitary confinement and hurting people. A leader helps people, elevates people, and changes the situation for the better. And when I changed my direction to want to go to Harvard, my attitudes towards leadership changed. And instead of starting a fight, I would intervene in the fight. Instead of ordering a hit, I would mediate a hit. And that's when leadership became real for me, when I saw the power of helping people. Then it became real. And so when you kind of flipped the script inside, how did the other that saw you one way, how did they start to feel about you when you changed? I mean, the, the, the funny thing was, you had to accept my chains. I use the analogy, and by no means am I Mike Tyson. If Mike Tyson was me, and he's in jail, and he decided he wanted to do something else, what are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going <laughs> to right. do? Right. Right. in the face. <laughs> so when I decided I wanted to do something, I didn't ostracize. I didn't shame. I didn't look down on. I didn't say I'm smarter or better than y'all. I'm here with you. I love you but I just want to do something else. And that's what that came down to. So I encouraged, I mentored, I helped them. I didn't turn my back on them and push came to shove those situations where I was willing to give up my dream to stand for my brothers in their crisis. And luckily it was, didn't go bad for me. There was a few times where I said, okay, this dream is on hold because that's my brother and he's in crisis and I got to help him. I'm not going to let him die because I have a dream. So the few times I had to stand up, it turned out in a good scenario where I didn't get more time or more time in solitary and I could keep moving forward. So nobody begrudged me. They didn't understand it, but nobody begrudged me. And I wasn't worth punching the bear. Like poking the bear wasn't going to be good for you. When you say stand up for your brothers, what, what in essence are the things that I mean, you had to that's do? back to the negativity. They got beef with other gangs. They got beef with the staff. And it's about to go down, as we would say. And I could opt out. Say, you know something? I'm not about that life no more. I'm just going to opt out or I can go opt in. And there was a few times I went back and I said, yo, dude, I got your back. I'm not going to listen. This ain't my beef. I'm saying this ain't what I want for my life, but I'm not, you're still my brother. I'm saying, I'm sorry that you chose this life, but I'm not going to just leave you high and dry because I'm on a new path. And I stood with him like, listen, we're going to die today. We're going to die today. I'm saying whatever it's going to be, it's going to be. Because at the end of the day, if my word is no good, then I'm no good. So I was blessed to be able to continue on my journey without having to actually go that extra mile or take that extra step back in negativity. I stood my ground with my brothers and both scenarios turned out where it didn't happen. Okay. So if you read the book, it's in the book. There's one of them I put in the book where I went to my man and said, hey, man, let's go. I got you. And it worked out that I didn't have to go. Oh, I see. Okay. So then you started to see your life started to transform, or you saw this transformation of your life. And so what are 
some of the or three of the ways where you did see that transformation and how did you and how did you feel about that or even the others around you feel about that? I mean, my big thing is not that I don't care, but I don't put a lot of energy into what others think about. If you're not my mentor, then it doesn't matter. I'm saying, it, I mean, just Joe Citizen down the street who doesn't know me, I'm not trying to please you. I'm not a people pleaser. So I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to be efficient. I'm going to be accountable, but I'm not a people pleaser. So I want you to have a great life, but I'm not responsible for your greatness. So with that, when I changed my life, I just focused on me. And I focused on developing Andre. How do I make Andre a better person? And once I started making Andre a better person, then I started taking those same skills that I learned and started giving them to the people around me. If you was in proximity to me, you were going to get the lessons that were given to me. And that's how that went. It's like I started sharing. because I, I went to, I was in a prison one day. I'm out in the hallway. And it was like a church Bible study or something. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a religious. I hated church people. But I walked up to the door and I looked in. So I was looking for somebody. And the chaplain was giving a Bible study. And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, don't. He said, no, he said, don't get in the way of your blessings. God's going to pour stuff into you. And it's your job to pour it on somebody else. He said, be a vessel. Don't be a stopgap. And it was just, I'll never forget that day in the hallway when I stood in the hallway and I heard that man say, be a vessel. He's going to fill you up. You pour it out, then he'll fill you up again. But if you don't pour it out, he can't pour anything else into you. And I couldn't tell you the chaplain's name, couldn't tell you the day of the month. I'll never forget that lesson. And I'm a firm believer that when you get the right lessons, they stay to you. And so I wanted to become a vessel. Not so much for God or for Allah or for any greater power, but for the things that were coming to Andre, I wanted to pour out on my brothers. Fantastic. And, you know, and I I know that Bible verse and it's true. I think once you are able to use the gifts that you've been given uh, for service, uh, for others, you will reap, you know, as a, hey, you'll reap what you sow. So that's great to hear that. And so, so you decided to, create the Academy of Hope. Uh, So tell me a little bit about that. What made you decide to take what you learned or the the actual gifts that you've been given to create this organization or program? I promise. Before I came home from prison, I was running youth programs for kids in the city. So kids in juvenile detention in Boston would be brought up to the prison and adult prisoners would sit with the juveniles. It'd be six of us and six of them in a volunteer we would just have conversations because most of us, if not all of us, had been in juvie. And most of them, if not all of them, were en route to the state prison. So the similarities were there. They're in juvie lockup. We're in adult lockup. We're away for Christmas. They're away for Christmas. Visits suck for us. Visits are horrible for them. So it's similarities just dead on. And we would have conversations. I did that for like the last two years of my sentence. And when I got time to go home, the kids came to me and said, Dre, we're glad you're going home. Will you come see us when you get out? Our program is right in the middle of the city. Everybody in this program who gets out never comes to see us. Only time we see them is when they come back here. So will you come see us? I said, sure. Day I walk out, go to the parole office. I sign my papers. Dude said, where you want to go? I said, take me to the juvenile center. They drive me to the juvenile center and the kids were like, yo, Dre's here. So I went in and I started talking to him. 
And they said, well, will you come back tomorrow? So I came back the next day. Will you come back tomorrow? Came back the next day. Came back the next day. And I just kept going back. And every time I would go, these kids were hungry for information. They were hungry for someone to care about them and to show up. They just kept saying, will you come back tomorrow? They never took it for granted. It was only like, yeah, he'll, every single day at the end of the day, they would say, brother, will you come back tomorrow? Then somebody asked me to talk to the girls. There was a girls unit upstairs I didn't know about. I didn't know anything about being a girl, but I went to the girls unit. And they were dealing with tons of trauma from molestation to domestic violence to prostitution and drug addiction, just countless problems they were going through. And I started helping the young girls. Then somebody asked me to go to a white school. I'm like, I don't want to white school. White kids got everything made. Went to a white school. They drank, they smoked, they have sex, they got bullies. I came out of there. I said, man, listen, if you call my phone, I'll show up. And I've been from that attitude, because before, when I had the attitude of, I only work with Blacks, I only stay in Black neighborhoods. And when I said, I help people, that's my new model. I'm pro-Black all day, but I help people. And I've been all over the world. Fantastic. So I know you've been doing this a long time. You've been over the world and travel. So what are some of the success stories that, that stay with you um, or you feel that you tend to tell when you're out on the road? Well, success stories, if I help you, that's between you and me. I don't help people for the, for the energy of putting it on stage. And so, I mean, I don't go out and tell other people stories. Well, there was this kid who fell off a cliff and I put him back on. No, I, I believe that's exploitive. I mean, I'll, if I'm in a room of people and I've helped somebody in that room, and they, I just literally just did that. I flew to San Francisco last week, or this three days ago, and there were four mothers in the audience who saw me at the last conference, and I helped their kids. Those four mothers came on stage and told their story, and I was just standing there. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell your story. I don't have the rights to tell your story. Um, the things I've been most proud of since I've been home is I had a son, and he's 16, he'll be 17 soon, and he's doing phenomenal. He's on his way to either Stanford or Columbia, and he's breaking the generational cycle of trauma and incarceration in our family. So I'm super excited about that. That's my story because that's my son. Um, Another thing I'm super excited about is one of my best friends, or the guy who helped me when I got off the bus, was doing a natural life sentence. He taught me how to stay alive. When I came home, I got him lawyers, and I got him out of prison. He's been home for 10 years now, has his own company. He's married, owns his house. He's doing phenomenal. And lastly, the prison system that I came out of, when I spent 14 years in, caused all kinds of havoc, they hired me eight months ago to come back and run the same unit that I used to live in. So I went from having a prison ID to having a staff ID because my turnaround is real. When you can convince the people that locked you up to give you keys to the same building, you've changed. (laughs) Yeah, that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I know a little bit about those units and some of the things that go on there uh, from a previous job that I did. So since you did mention the prison system and now that you're kind of a staff person there, what are some of the key aspects kind of necessary, do you think, that could transform the prison system? You need, a, you need like all systems, you need a system design that speaks to the people. Every place else, doctors are trained by doctors, lawyers are trained by lawyers, police by police, and on and on and on. Nurses by nurses, clerks by clerks. 
Prison is one of the only few places where the people trying to teach them are the people who locked them up. <laughs> so the prisoner sees the guard as an extension of the criminal justice system because they are. There's a police officer, there's a district attorney, there's a judge, there's a jury, there's a warden, there's a CO. They're all one congruent system in the prisoner's mind. I don't care how you want to separate yourself out, but from the prisoner's perspective, it's all one system. You work together. So the persons that put me here, right or wrong, guilty or not, are now trying to help me. And it just doesn't work well. So bringing in new attitudes, new philosophies, and allowing people that look like them, sound like them, move like them. And I say look like them, it's not to color. I work with white prisoners, Spanish prisoners, to sabes so when I go in, I talk to the Spanish brothers. I talk to the white guys. I talk to them. I look like them. I had a number. I walked out. And I'm successful. In prison, the only time you see people is when they fail at parole. They went home on parole. They failed. They come back. You only see failures. So bringing successes back in is extremely important. And the more authority and positioning that you can give to those folks is even more important. So they need to see success. That's what we want for our kids is they want to see successful parents and successful internships and successful people in college, which produces success. What we have in prison is the opposite. We have people who failed coming back, giving information to people who are trying to succeed and it'll never work. And so in the short time that you've been there and and being a success story, have you seen a shift in how the, uh, the prison has been running? Oh, definitely. I mean, when we come in, it's twofold. I've been in, I've been working in prisons for the last 20 years. So this, the prison system I came out of is a new contract. I've been doing prison work for 20 years. I've worked in multiple prisons across the country and around the world. What happens when I go in I say this and people don't get it. Don't give me 50 prisoners. Give me 50 guards. Because guards don't believe that we can become great. Guards never see us at our best. Guards never see us on the upside. They only see the negative parts of us. We're here for committing a crime. We're in here acting crazy. We're in here doing whatever we're doing. So they don't see the positive parts of us. So they don't ever get to develop that muscle or that, that empathy to say, hey, these guys are going to be great. They've never seen us at being great. And when anybody goes home, they only see the ones that fail come back. So their mindset is conditioned that we're bad and we're going to keep repeating this cycle. So when they see me come in, to them it's like, wow, wait a minute. One of them did make it. One of them is doing good. One of them is being beneficial, is being helpful. And the guards need to see it, I believe, 10 times more than the prisoners. Because you give me 50 prisoners, I give 50 success stories. You give me 50 guards, I give 5,000 success stories because the guards stay, prison cycle out. Great. And so then if that led you to write a book, Ambassador of Hope, Turning Poverty in Prison in a Purpose-Driven Life. So what made you decide to do that? And, and in essence, who was the book for? Okay, well, the real reason I wrote the book is I was in the prison I run now, and I read a book. I don't want to put the guy's name out there because I don't want to slander him. He had somebody who done time, and he went home, and he wrote a book about his life experience in and out of jail. 
And it was so drastically opposite of mine. <laughs> I was like, he was like, to me, a villain. <laughs> For prisoners, he was like the world's worst person. <laughs> Amongst us, he was so unaccepted or unacceptable. It was like, no, you can't be us. And no, you can't represent. I was so enraged when I read this book. I'm like, the world is reading this book and thinking we're all the same. I went up to my cell, had a yellow legal notepad, and I started writing my book immediately. I said, the world can't see this as us or as me. And that's what prompted me to write my book. And then when I came home, I got so busy, I never put it out. But then I got with a company called Scribe out of Texas, and they helped me make that book phenomenal, changed my whole manuscript into a readable document, and the book went out. So the book is for anybody who needs an inspirational story of the impossible being possible. So in that book, we talk about the UN calling me and asking for help with world terrorism. In that book, we talk about traveling to different countries and sitting with world leaders and making an impact. In that book, we talk about somebody going from the basement of a prison to Harvard University. And it's more of an inspirational than a how-to. Um, and my next book will be a how-to. This one is just, they try to get me to do the business book first, but I couldn't. My, okay. my life story, I kept getting it in the way. So I had to do, this is who I am. This is what I've been through. And this is how I see the world. And that stays evolving. And, I, and I'm glad you mentioned Harvard, because I know we didn't touch upon that. And I just wanted, I felt question come up is what was your experience like there and what were I guess through two or three takeaways that could help especially teens of color that may feel that they don't belong at Harvard or they you know they get in but they struggle thinking that they don't they're not going to make it that goes back to conditioning they've been conditioned that they can't be there my wife has a master's degree from Harvard in history black girl from Brooklyn all of her friends a black girls from all over the country, black boys from all over the country. They're there and doing well. So the mindset is not real and doesn't match the reality. So the reality is we can and we do go there. There's those of us who grew up in circumstances and trauma that convince us that we shouldn't reach for so high. Know your place. Stay in your lane. Don't cross some tracks. That's conditioning. And that's a conditioning that I aim to break because when I went and I got there, I was received. All my friends were like, where you at, Dre? I said, I'm at Harvard, and I'm invited. Cornell West, Henry Louis Gates, Charles Ogletree, Anthony Appiah are inviting me in. They're sitting down with me. They're talking with me. We are building. Charles Ogletree gave me a fellowship to the law school. They want us here. Whatever the lies that we told ourselves was a lie. They want us here. Stop believing the lie. Stop believing in Disney World. I'm saying not the place, but the thing. I'm saying you can do this. And my presence speaks way louder than anything that I say. Because when they know that I've been there and I've walked these yards and I've committed these things, and I'm, I'm here. They're like, man, Dre's there. So when I go into these CEO rooms, I'm at Deutsche Bank or Denim Foods, I'm at Lonely's Construction, I'm at Genius Network, I'm at Scaling Up, I'm at all the top masterminds in the world. And I still come back to the hood. Dre, where you at? I was at um, Genius Network, and I break it down for them. I take them with me sometimes. They're like, yo, they, they rock with you. I'm like, yeah, and they'll rock with you too. It's the conditioning that we've been programmed with that we don't belong any place but where we've come from. And that is so, the re- I fly all the time. 
And 90% of the people I've seen in the air are white. I'm like, where are all the black people? We can afford plane tickets. <laughs> but we're so busy stuck in four square blocks that it's not funny. Right, right. Okay, a couple things. Uh, so if someone wants to support your efforts in the Academy of Hope, how, how can they get involved? If you want to support the Academy of Hope, um, I don't want your money. Don't send me any money. Do not send me a dime. You know what I'm saying I'm, not, I'm a nonprofit. Don't send me a dime. What you can send me is I have a tablet program where guys and girls in prison have tablets, and they can, it's like iPads for like it's like a prison right. tablet, right. and you can watch movies, you can watch education. Send me a course on how to build your credit. Send me a course on how to set up an LLC. Send me a course on how to talk to your daughter who's been in the street. Send me a course on how to make amends of mental health. Send me some ebooks that you've written that I can put on these tablets and make available for these people. Give me information that can help change their life. You give me money, it's no good. They don't need money. They need information. When I was inside, I didn't need money. I needed information. Information is way more valuable than cash. So I would ask if you you just you don't know how to do nothing else, go buy a course and send it to me. Don't send me cash. Send me information that I can disseminate to the people who are in need because that's the thing that they need above and all else. I don't need to manage somebody's money, but I can definitely get them the information that can change their lives. So a course, an ebook, a video. You want to do an interview? If you like have a phenomenal story, I love to interview you like this. I love to fit the same you. Give me copies of your podcast. You've already taken them. You put them on YouTube. You give them away for free. Say, hey, Dre. I give you the rights to my podcast. You download them, show them to the prisoners. You might have 40, 50, 100 podcasts of great information. Prisoners need to hear your voice. Not just me. It can't be Andre the Lone Wolf. I love for you to say, hey, I know 10 other podcasters, right? I'm going to get them to give you their stuff. And all they got to do is give me permission, and I go on YouTube and pull them down. And I turn around and put them on a platform for the brothers and sisters inside. They need to hear multiple voices, not just one. That, well, that's great. I'll, we'll definitely connect on that because, uh, yeah, they they should be able to get these messages because they're all messages of hope. So, and uh, I love that. Uh, so, uh, finally, uh, what, which I always ask all of my uh, brothers who are on, uh, because you know we're always doing doing the work, and sometimes we don't always think about or introspective about ourselves. So, I always like to ask this question as we close. What is on your mind as a black man right now? On my mind as a black man right now, beyond my family, because that's the easy go-to. For Andre, what does Andre want? What does Andre need? Um, I could use a wife. That's, that'd be like the happiest thing, because I've been out here just running 100 miles an hour. People say, yeah, Dre, you're single, you're rich, you help people, you travel the world. Who doesn't want to be with you? Anybody just wants to get tired of you on the road. I literally was on the road like, 28 days last month. I'm going to be on the road like 24 days this month and 20 something days next month. So it's like, I mean, if I can find somebody who's like compatible and like funny and the rest that can travel with me or just understand my life, if you want to chill home, cool. If you want to come, come. But um, that'd be phenomenal if I could find a sister who could understand and and rock out. Well, I mean, I have to say that's uh, that's a great plug and you know all of the and all the work that you're doing. I'm sure that person will pop up probably 
you'll find them on a plane somewhere traveling. So <laughs> you know. that's the thing. Yeah, ninety nine percent of people in the airport don't look like us. Well, or they're out from some island somewhere. <laughs> but uh, you know, Andre, I just want to applaud you for the work that you're doing, and I pray that as you go forward, that you'll continue to just touch others, and I'll probably just reach out. Uh, yeah, to to give rights or you know for the podcast to be because uh, I they should be deserved to see it as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be like the Black Moses where the only person they hear is me. I'm saying like I control this podcast. I want them to hear every voice from every position, from every attitude, every disposition. They can forget about me. If I can just send 20, 30, 40 voices, it doesn't have to be me. It just has to be the information. And that's the thing that I was taught, that it doesn't have to be you. Just give them the information. Truly an inspiring bounce back story on how just by changing your mindset, you can change your life. You can check out Andre Norman and the Academy of Hope at andrenorman.com and also his book, Ambassador of Hope. Black Men Speak was written, produced, and edited by me, Keith Dent. You can find previous podcasts wherever you get your favorite, like Libsyn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Today we're ending with a quote from Andre himself on why he is addressing working in the same prison he came from. Everybody has potential, but it's not the potential that stops their growth. It's the pain. Our goal, our plan, our mission is to heal the pain, then give their potential a chance to take over. Because if you keep speaking to their potential or what you are seeing, it's the wrong end of it. Prison is where people end up, not where they started. We go back to where they started, the pain, and turn their weak moments, their embarrassments, and help make them strong. This is truly the essence of the Academy of Hope. This is Keith Dent from Black Men Speak. Peace.